Good morning, church. Before we begin uh, today's message, I want to uh, remind you that on Wednesday of this week, we will enter the season of Lent. These days leading up to Easter, where we focus on the cross of Christ and his resurrection that gives us hope in the days to come. As we've been uh, awaiting Pastor Gordon's arrival, we've been in a church-wide emphasis on prayer and fasting. As we come to the Lenten season, many will uh, experience fasting as part of your religious discipline during this time. And since it doesn't look like we'll get that deep into chapter 6 of Matthew, into the fasting section, I would encourage you to read those verses in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 and following, what Jesus says about fasting. I would encourage you to go back into the Old Testament, into Isaiah 58, where God talks about the kind of fasting that he desires. I want to just give you a few points about this, the things that fasting is not and the things that fasting is supposed to be in our lives. And then if you want to incorporate that into your Lenten season, then you will be informed as to how God wants us to pursue this. First of all, it's God's expectation that we would fast. It doesn't say there if you fast. Jesus says when you fast. When the Pharisees talked to him about his disciples, he said they will fast. We recognize this is one of the things that God commands of us. And so there's something for us to learn in the midst of fasting. It is not, first of all, a point of spiritual pride. And we'll get into that. That's why the Pharisees were criticized in those few verses, because they were making it a point of spiritual pride. In fact, the Pharisees loved to fast on the fasting days, which they had set aside Monday and Thursday. Those were the busiest times in the marketplace. And they would go through the marketplace and looking all kinds of somber. And people would say, oh, you must be fasting. You must be so holy. They got the praise of men, but not the praise of God. It is not a hunger strike. It is not a diet plan. (laughs) It's not to attract God's attention. Always we are the center of God's attention. We don't need to do something like fasting to get him to listen to us. Neither does it prove our repentance. Another thing about fasting is you cannot do it for someone else's repentance. Now, make no mistake, I fasted and prayed all through my children's growing up years for their salvation. But I could not make the decision for them. But when we fast for someone and pray for them, it draws our attention to what we can do in our responsibility to them. We're more aware of that responsibility. And as we fast and pray for our world, and especially during the season of Lent that leads to the cross... We desire to draw all people we can to the cross. And how do we do that? We lift up Jesus. So those are some of the things that fasting is not. (laughs) What fasting is, is a step to help us master the flesh. Jesus said to Satan after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a reminder to us of the weakness of the body, but the strength of the spirit. And that we live by God's power. Fasting is always tied to praying because it is to fit our minds for devotion. It gets our attention. And we focus on God. It's also to set into motion the simplicity of life. To realize the basic needs of our bodies. Fasting is to be occasional. It is to be secret. And it's to be joyous. But it's always with a spiritual purpose. 
So if you engage in fasting during this time of Lent, be that fasting of food or some people fast, you know, special things that they like or electronics or social media or anything, something that you set aside for a time to realize more of our focus on God. The biblical evidence for fasting is the endorsement of those who practice fasting. It is a long list. Moses, David, Elijah, Esther, Daniel, Anna, Jesus, Paul, the list goes on and on and on of those who practice fasting. And so, as we come to this season, may we focus on him. Now, back to the Sermon on the Mount, where we have barely scratched the surface of this, but in the Beatitudes, Jesus has given to us the nature of the Christian. What are the characteristics of the Christian life? After he speaks of those characteristics, he then speaks of our function. What is our purpose as Christians? And he uses the metaphor of the salt. We are the salt of the earth and light. We are the light of the world. And then last week we looked at how our relation to the law is that that law which was written on tablets of stone is now written on hearts of flesh. Jesus always wants us to internalize the law, to make it motive rather than exterior action. And the rest of chapter 5, from where we left off last week, are examples of that interior motive. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. I say, do not be angry with your brother. He goes on and says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I say, do not lust. He always takes it into the inner life to recognize what we are to do. And with each paragraph, he gives another illustration of that from the law. It's to show his superiority to the law. As if Jesus is saying, I gave the law, now I've come to fulfill that law. To show you how it can be written on your hearts and on your minds. And so it's this law of love. And we love because he first loved us. We don't initiate that love, but we respond to that love. And then pass it on to others. And so this law of love and all the illustrations lead us down to the closing and concluding verses there of chapter 5. Where he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's a big challenge, isn't it? We will live all of our lives striving for that perfection. But what Jesus says is the trap of legalism is that the law can become your God. But if I am in your hearts, then you're going to respond out of, out of love. Responding to the goodness that God has given to us. So the spirit of the law is to be primary. And our motive is the key. We are to delight in the law of the Lord, as it says in Psalm 1. To recognize the joy of that. For the law is positive. It's not a list of negatives of things we don't do to be Christian. It is the joy of God placed in our hearts through his Holy Spirit by which we can live this Christian life. And so all these examples of Christian perfection are focused on motive. God is patient with us in this journey. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this, that he who began a work, good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He will carry it on to completion. This completion, this maturity, this fullness, this being filled, this sanctification, they are all together with this concept of perfection in Christ. What it is to be pure in our motives. We recognize that we will always fall short of perfection in action. But thank God he looks at the heart. 
And when we bumble things and mess things up, he looks on the heart. He knows our motive. And we rejoice if our motive is pure. Years ago, there was a bumper sticker that all kinds of Christians put on their, on their cars with the initials, Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And God indeed is patient with us. In 1 Thessalonians, we have this word about sanctification. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He calls us to this and then he fulfills it within us by his Holy Spirit. He doesn't call us to an ideal and then watch us fall short of that ideal. He calls us and then equips us to move in that direction. And all of our lives will be moving in that direction. I love the story of the epitaph on Ruth Graham's gravestone. Ruth Graham was the wife of Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist of the last century. And Ruth Graham wanted on her headstone these words. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) All of our lives we are under construction. And God and other believers are patient with us as we grow in Christ. But it's clear that God expects that growth for us. And so we move into his expectations. God is like a loving parent who is delighted in everything that child does, but always urging that child on to more. As parents with a young toddler, when those first steps are taken and everybody cheers that first step, and then the child falls and gets back up and tries again, and we cheer them on. But three or four years later, we're not cheering them on for every little step. We expect maturity and growth, and God expects maturity and growth with us. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. He wants us to continue to grow in his grace. One homespun philosopher said, It's better to aim for the moon and miss than aim for a skunk and hit. (laughs) We want to aim for this perfection in Christ, not aim low for the things of this world. A little more eloquently, C.S. Lewis put it this way, Aim for heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. But if you aim for the earth, you will get neither. We recognize that God calls us to a heavenly viewpoint. And so what is this perfection? It is the completion of our purpose as believers. Now pay attention. I'm going to show you the perfect pen. Here it is. You know why that's a perfect pen? Not because of what it costs. That's a cheap old big pen. If you buy them in bulk, I think they're about a dime a piece. But it fulfills its purpose when I put the pen to this piece of paper and it makes a mark. I fulfill my purpose when I do what I was created to do. Give glory and praise to God the Father. The Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? What's the chief purpose of humanity? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our purpose is to give him glory. And when we give him glory, we're fulfilling that purpose. We are achieving this perfection of spirit that the word calls us to. Now, I want us to look about this, how this law of love that God speaks about in the fifth chapter moves in to this life of service that he speaks of in chapter six, because it's always focused on our 
motives. Chapter 6 starts out with these words about giving. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. He goes on to talk about prayer and fasting as well. And so he says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be seen by men. But when you give, give secretly. So we recognize that God calls us to do things for the right reasons. And so the question arises, is Christianity to be open or hidden? Back in chapter 5, in verses 14 through 16, he talks about doing our good deeds. You don't light your lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, you put it on its stand. It gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. So we're supposed to let our light shine. But here it says, give without announcement. Pray in secret. Fast without display. So we are to do the right things, but for the right reasons. And realize there's no chapter break here. When Jesus is on the mountainside, they don't say, okay, that's the end of chapter 5. Now we're on to chapter 6. The idea of be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect flows right into this life of service. We're to keep our eyes on God, not on man. We're to be serving him, not for man's applause. And so this surface contradiction indicates kind of the delicate balance to us of the Christian life. It must be visible, but not for the sake of public display. Not for the sake of that visibility. We are to show our faith. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, but not for the praise of men. Back there in chapter 5, he says that people may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Not see your good deeds and praise you. We recognize that we are serving the living God. And so the key phrase is to be seen by them. Don't give to be seen by people. Don't pray to be seen by people. Don't fast to be seen by people. Do it to God for his glory. Every athlete knows that you do not play for your own satisfaction. You don't play to impress the opponent. You don't even play to thrill the crowd. You play for the coach. We play our lives out to God. Not to impress ourselves, not to impress others, not to thrill the crowds, but to please God the Father. Live our lives to Him. And so we give for the glory of God. We pray to be in communication with God. We fast to recognize God's presence in our lives. Now, Jesus takes for granted that we will do right actions, but He wants us to do them for the right reason. T.S. Eliot, in his great play, Murder in the Cathedral, says this, that the last temptation is the greatest treason, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. And in all of these good works, Satan wants to trip us up by changing our motivation, by making it selfish instead of selfless. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, people were even going to martyrdom without the motivation of love. If I give my body to the flames and yet have not love, I gain nothing. And so we have this progression of motive leads to Christian action. And then Jesus says, then it leads to Christian reward. Because God sees the heart. The result of doing the right thing for the wrong motive is that we lose our reward. Now, it's not always popular to talk about our reward, but Jesus talks about it all the time. 
Three times here in this passage in chapter 6, he says, great is your reward in heaven if you're doing this, giving, praying, fasting to God. In the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, to the two talents who obey, the master says, well done, good and faithful servants. You remember that story. There's one man who's given one talent, which is an amount of money in their culture. Another is given two. Another is given five. And the one who is given two earns two more. He doubles it. The one who is given five is given five more. He doubles it. And yet, the master does not reward the one with five more in a greater way. In fact, the words are identical. If you look in that chapter, the reward for the first servant says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then two verses down, the reward for the second servant, the five-talent servant, is word for word the same. No matter how we have been skilled by God, we are to use our gifts for him. And the reward is his presence in our lives and glory in eternity. I would encourage you to read Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 that talk about our eternal reward. We are always to keep this eternal perspective. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Then when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Isn't that amazing? Set your minds on things above with Christ. And when he comes, we'll appear with him in glory. But the very next verse says, okay, the way to get there, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Remember when we started in the upper room with Jesus in John chapter 17, he says in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. God longs for us to be with him. Earlier, there in the upper room, Jesus says to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and take you to be with me where I am. In fact, Jesus never promised material rewards here on earth. In fact, if anything, we are promised tribulation and suffering and persecution while we are here. The rewards he gives here on earth are only rewards to the spiritually minded. The satisfaction of doing the right thing. And the more that we do, if you go back to that parable of the talents in Matthew 25 and go to the end of Jesus' parable, he gives the one extra talent for the one who had buried it away to the one who already has ten. Well, what does that represent? Not more riches. It represents more responsibility. You've done well with what you've given. I'll give you more responsibility. And so God grants us responsibility in his kingdom to serve him, to love, to do these good works that this chapter points out to us. It's the opposite of the world's thought about rewards. I've worked hard. I've worked a long time. Now I deserve relaxation. I've earned my rest. But as the vision of God comes nearer and nearer to us, we begin to see it more and more clearly. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. This sense of God has something greater for us than what's here. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he said, if I find in myself 
a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. God has created us to serve him, that we might be with him forever. And Jesus says that's his greatest desire. He longs that we would see him in his glory, that we would be with him. And so the highest reward is not for the reward seeker. So here in this chapter, chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus now sets out for believers this principle of right motive with these three pillars of the religious life, of giving, of prayer, and of fasting. Almsgiving for the Jew was the highest form of religious activity because it was not required in the Torah. In fact, their word for almsgiving was the same word they used for righteousness. It was that much a part of their service. But Jesus realized that even this could be done with the wrong motivation. To demonstrate their generosity to others. We're told here that they are announcing their giving with trumpets. Somebody giving a trumpet fanfare, so pay attention to how much I'm giving. But remember the scene in the temple. When the widow gives her tiny two mites. And Jesus said she has given more than all the others with all of their display and all of their wealth. We are to give as God has prompted us to give. Not out of necessity, but the word says God loves a cheerful giver. But not to please others. It can be done for a sense of legalistic duty. It can be done to demonstrate superiority or a condescending attitude to others or for prestige. And it says in each of these categories of giving and prayer and fasting, I tell you the truth, these people have received their reward in full. People who only give for the praise of men, who only pray to be honored by men, who only fast so others will take note of it, have received a reward of sorts. They've gotten the praise of people. The Pharisees in Jesus' day had received the praise of the people. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who set the example. But Jesus says they've received their reward in full. But when you give, give secretly. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We recognize that God looks on the hearts and that changes everything. And so... We are not to announce our giving to others. There's no reward from God to those who seek reward from men. So it comes down to a choice. Am I going to seek the praise of people or am I going to seek the praise of God? And it's a two-way street. Jesus said, if you renounce me before men, I will renounce you before the Father. But if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge your name in the presence of the Father. To recognize we are part of his kingdom. And always remember, we are in God's presence. That's the supreme truth of this life with God. It's short-sighted to grab for things now and miss eternity. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? Paul reminded the Corinthian church, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We live in that unseen world where we give our best to God. So everything that we say, that we do, that we attempt, that we think, that we imagine, we are always in the presence of God. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 
139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar, you discern my going out and my lying down, you're familiar with all of my ways. God is everywhere and he is within us and he knows us completely. And so we come now to a very difficult point in this paragraph about giving. So he says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. They receive their reward in full. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, this is a tougher thing. It's one thing not to announce it to the world. But it's another thing not to announce it to ourselves. Not to get caught up in our holiness. Say, well, look, I'm pretty good. I pay my tithe all the time. I give above my tithe this much. I pray this much. I fast this much. It's not for our satisfaction. It's to God's glory that he might mold us and shape us. And so to resolve the conflict of chapter 5 and chapter 6 of, yes, Christianity is to be set on a lampstand so all will see, and yet our spiritual motivation is to be secret and quiet before the Lord. Christianity must be visible, but not for the sake of of invisibility. But it's hard to hide it from ourselves, isn't it? And Satan always wants to get us into that trap of patting ourselves on the back of this legalism of, look how good you are doing. God must be so proud of you. It is only by his grace that we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves so that no one can boast. If you go back to that chapter in Matthew, chapter 25, that we spoke of with the parable of the talents, At the end, Jesus says to the disciples, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. And they said, Lord, when? When did we do those things? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. And so we need to recognize the humility of service. We were talking earlier about fasting. Fasting is always about humility. David said, I humbled myself with fasting. We realize our own weakness when we serve. And we realize that our service is only possible because of the power of God working within us. But this life of service is to be constant in our lives. So how can we be righteous and yet try to be blind to that righteousness? And the way to do it is to keep our eyes on the light of Jesus Christ. For he alone is righteous. We can only love because he has first loved us, says in 1 John. We recognize that truth. We are to die to self. At the end of that passage in Colossians, where it says, set your minds on things above. Then we get into that fifth verse, and it says, therefore put to death everything that belongs to your sinful nature. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. We are to die to a selfish, self-centered way of living. It's a self-centered way of living that wants the praise of people for our religious activities. It is to God's glory when it's done in humility. I'm going to date myself by quoting a Christian song from Petra, which is probably 40 or 50 years old. But one of the verses in a Petra song says, Joy is not in where we've been. Joy is who's waiting at the end. We look forward to that day 
when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. More important than any accolades we can receive here on this earth is to hear the words of our Savior, that we fulfilled our purpose. We strove to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, to be mature, to be complete, to be filled by His spirits, to die to the praise of men and to live for the well done of God. And so we live this Christian life, and next week we'll start into the section on prayer. Because we are citizens of another kingdom. And he who sees what is done in secret, the word says, will reward you openly. And so we focus on this day of service and that day when he comes for us. And the whole focus of this season of Lent is to focus on what Jesus did for us at the cross and what God did for us at the open tomb by raising him from the dead that we might have life in him. That we might focus not on the praise of this world, but on the praise of the only one who matters, God our Father. Lord, teach us what it means to live lives that are changed, transformed by you. And as Jesus sat the disciples down on the mountainside and began to share his heart and tells them, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and then begins to map out how that looks. Focus on God, not on men. Strive to please him, not to please yourself. Strive to be his in everything that you say and do. Father, teach us that as we walk into this week with our eyes wide open to what you want to teach us. And in the name of Jesus, amen. The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and give you peace this week in his name. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you.